Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great episode we have today. We're very privileged to have on the pod Adrian Vasquez Lazarra. Adrian is MEP in the Renew Europe from Spain with Cidadanos. He's also speaker of the group in the European Parliament of Cidadanos Europa and president of the Committee on Legal Affairs at the European Parliament. Our conversation is going to focus on the status of the European Union enlargement, in special at the region of the Balkans, and is particularly on topic now, as we knew this week, that the European Commission is to recommend that Bosnia-Herzegovina to be granted candidate status to join the European Union. So now, with no further ado, I bring you MEP Adrian Vasquez-Lazarra. I'm here with MAP Adrian Vasquez. Adrian, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. A pleasure to, to be here today with you. Oh, it's a privilege to have you here and in such an important topic right now, which is, of course, not only the crisis in Europe due to the attack from the Russian Federation to Ukraine, but, and we'll get into that in a minute, your experience of the Western Balkan situation and particularly the extension to what is called candidate status, uh, member states on the European Union. But before that, I would like you to introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit, what was the path taken so that we are at this moment talking here on the podcast? I got into politics, uh, well, not by accident, because I always was very involved uh, from civil society and, and, and in the line of work that I used to do in, in political related issues. But, well, I worked and studied abroad for many years. I always had a focus on international relations, working at NATO. Uh, I work uh, at the, with the OSCE in Bosnia, for instance. Uh, and I also work with a former foreign affairs minister. And then I just got involved more and more in a liberal centrist party in Spain. And they ended up offering me to come to Brussels. And once I got to Brussels, next step that they offered me was to be on, on a list. And then here I am uh, as an MEP trying to defend the Spanish uh, constituencies and, and citizens. And of course, always from the liberal perspective. I've been following your work very closely since I first saw you on an ELF event and doing a fantastic job, not only uh, regarding Spaniard uh, issues, but European ones. But uh, let's stay with you for one more question, and that is, is this a call that you felt going into international relations or just something that presented itself, or did you always ask the international aspect of this kind of uh, politics? I think it was a call uh, since uh, early on. I mean, from, since I was a, a child, I really have a lot of interest in history. And when you study and you read a lot of history, at the end you're studying history from different countries, how countries came to happen, how the way we, we organize ourselves as societies. And, and that, at the end, has to, I think, uh, leads you to actually get involved into international issues, international organizations, quite global way of looking to how the world works and the different countries. From the very beginning, I had a, a passion for it. And then I studied international relations and international studies uh, with focus on different religions and, and, and different ways of government. And, and that led me where I'm today. So from the very beginning, I think it was, it was, uh, I was born to work in the international arena, I would say. Well, one, one of these days, I'm going to ask you to come back to the podcast so we can go a little bit into the uh, scholarship part of uh, watching a project, a European project of different countries. But today I have you here because, of course, we're going to talk about 
member state trying to enter the European Union and you have a very close relationship to that. But before, Adrian, let's talk a little bit about the crisis in Europe. So um, in your opinion, how do you see this play out? We keep waiting for that moment where diplomacy may solve things or militarily things uh, will also advance, but we are still on this stalemate. So tell us a little bit of your analysis of what's going on with this crisis in Europe. I think I'm going to try to approach from a social perspective on how crisis impacts on our societies and how these have always a consequence when it comes to how we rule uh, the countries or how we decide to organize our societies. I think that we were still uh, suffering the consequences of the economic crisis of 2007-2009. You could see that in how uh, has been the development of the different political forces, not only Europe, but beyond Europe. Uh, movements that they are back to either nationalism trends or they just embrace populism ways of doing politics to to get to power. And that trend, uh, regretfully, is on the rise. So if you see the trend of how many populist movements and leaders are showing up all across not only Europe but the world is just going up and up and up. And traditional parties, let's say from center-left to the center-right spectrum, and of course centrist parties like those uh, members of the Alde family and, and my own party, uh, we are suffering the consequences of that. The thing is when we were, I think, looking a little bit at the end of the tunnel in that sense, we had again two huge crises that have again put at risk how hmm. the system works. The pandemic uh, that has put such much tense and it has... Mm -hmm. Uh, been such a shock in our institutions that we are we haven't still recovered yet, and we still don't know to what extent it's going to have a consequence in our societies. And now we have the aggression of Russia to Ukraine, and and most of it, we have also the perspective of most of the countries that they look to this aggression in a different way that as Europeans and maybe other Western democracies look at. So I think we had a really difficult moment in time, and the consequences of this crisis. They're going to be huge in our society, depending on the decisions we're going to have to take today. And that's what worries me the most, because I don't see that we are reading uh, our societies as the populists are. And I think we are failing on that. And let's stay here for a little more, because you just mentioned the decisions, the hard decisions that we have to make. Can you go a little bit into that then, please? Well, when it comes to the pandemic, I think the decisions at the European level were great more competences were transferred to the European Union because there was a common understanding, not only at government level, but also at citizens level, that we had to be coordinated. And actually, a good job was done. And I think we that gave a lot of strength to the European. But then we mm -hmm. had, first, the economic impact of the pandemic, that we were still looking into how to solve it. We put the next generation funds out there. We was also a great advancement in the harmonization of our economic systems, but our fiscal systems. But then we have the aggression of Ukraine, of Russia to Ukraine. And what I see now is that we are trying to continue doing laws and making policies based on the world, how it was one year ago. And the world is not any longer as it was one year ago. And the necessities of our societies in the short and medium term are not any longer those we had one year ago. And I think that political projects, they fail when they are incapable of adapting to their context. And I think that we are failing to do so now. And I can put examples such as all the green policies that we're trying to push forward, thinking that we are in the same position as we were one year ago. All the policies we are doing or pushing forward uh, regarding, for instance, the production of food, not the same context as we were one year ago. 
and as well, all the pressure we're putting into Russia when it comes to resources, gas, and so on, we have to take into account that our position is unique in the sense that most of the countries around the world, they don't agree with that. And the international arena is not about one only act. We have a clear multilateralism, and I think that we either try to adapt to the current context and be a little bit more pragmatic in many senses, or we're going to have a huge social distortion in our union from now to the next five to seven years. So very provocative thoughts opened the door for many uh, interesting conversations. But I'll, I'll try to focus in one in particular. You're saying those tough decisions that we have to take. Some of them actually have to do with the kind of relationship that we still have with Russia regarding, for example, energy. How do you think then the European Union, and there is the unanimity problem that will still be solved until we have a new treaty that will take care of it. But how do you see then Europe making those tough decisions regarding particular Europe? When you are in Brussels, when you are with your colleagues in the European Parliament, what are the conversations taken to say, we definitely have to close this, this, this and that to Russia because we need to weaken them? So tell us a little bit, how do you feel that? From the parliament perspective, and if you allow me, then I will give a, a, a more national perspective on this. When we're discussing of, 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 of demanding the, the, the cut, the immediate cut of, of, of Russian uh, resources and gas, the most uh, heard argument was, let's ask for this because we know it's not going to happen. So that's not the way I think politics should. So if you don't know it's going to happen, what are you doing? That's just to, 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 to put some flame on citizens and then in November, as to the European citizens to have their heater below 18 degrees at home? What, what's, what's, what's the mentality? I really don't get what is this. So if you are incapable of doing that in a rational way, and you need maybe three, five years to successfully find other resources and build other uh, facilities to actually maybe get gas, liquefied gas in the sense, from other parts of the world, then you have to explain to the society, we need three years to do this. And then the second thing, why we are? I remember in 2011, I was a researcher at NATO, and my research, I, I specialized during my, my academic years in, in energy security, and my research was the impact of Fukushima in the NATO defensive capacities. And why Fukushima? Because Fukushima is what provoked Merkel government to close down, I think it was 11 years. And that movement of huge irresponsibility led them again to the Germans to build up two pipelines, North Stream 1 and 2 and actually throwing themselves to Russia, Putin's Russia. So I remember that during the economic crisis, there was a lot of blame to Southern countries because of how they dealt with their real estate bubble, with their economy and so on. There was even a bailout to Greece and, and, and Italy, Spain and Ireland and Portugal were very close to the fault. And we got a lot of heat. Now is us suffering the responsibility of countries as Europe. And I think we are gonna be here to support them, of course. We are together on this. We are partnered with Germany and we are we're even brothers uh, because in the European Union, I'm, I feel as, as close to a German to a Finnish in the sense that we're all together in this. But now it's, this is also good because it, this is a reality check, a reality check for many countries. And the other thing is liberals or centrist people, I, I can understand that you can try to communicate to, to, to be more sexy sometimes or provocative because mm -hmm. you need to get both of course. But then when you go to institutions, the last thing you do is try to support or do a political statement just because you know it's not going to happen. I think that's interesting. Indeed. Um, again, those are fantastic points that you're raising. And 
it's not going to be today's conversation, but uh, one good thing about the Iberian Peninsula, and me being from Portugal and you being from Spain, we could be of great help uh, regarding to help our uh, friends from Central and uh, Eastern Europe. But today we're going to talk about something else, even if you're opening the door for such interesting conversations, because we're going to talk about candidate status from Ukraine and Moldova, and then how does that relate to the Western Balkans. But before that, Adrian, tell us, of course, you were happy, as I'm sure everybody was, of the um, Ukraine and Moldova being part of the, of the process. But let's stay with that. For Tell us your expectations, how this it's going to go. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people getting really, really excited with the idea. I'm being also seeing a lot of people getting very, very negative in, in a way that they don't see this happening in the next, you know, 15 to 20 years, which is, of course, also to be expected due to the Russian attack in Ukraine. So you being closer to the to the center of this, tell us what are your thoughts? Well, the first thing I think is that, of course, if you stop on the headlines, you will see citizens will read. Ukraine and Moldova, they are EU candidates to join our union. I mean, they are on the candidacy status. But then if you go down in the articles, I think that the commission has been clear explaining what does that mean. And it means a lot of things. Uh, and, and I think it's out there, but probably what the people got is they are candidates. So people, of course, they are not in the bubble like us, so they say, well, this is going to happen overnight. This is also a problem with the Ukrainian citizens. Because the worst politicians can do is raise expectations and then don't deliver. Because then we are going back to what populism. So although I think it was a great PR movement, and I think it was great, and I have met yesterday, I was with the Minister of Justice of Ukraine in Prague, and we, I had a long chat with him explaining what from, from the committee I, I, I chair, the, the Legal Affairs Committee in the Parliament, we have done. And we have done everything that is under our remit to try to help as much as possible, but under our remit. We have competences, you know, the legal frameworks of, of, of institutions, they don't fall from the sky. You have, there are rules. And, and it's true that I felt a little bit of desperation, of course, because of the situation, but because we were not moving quick enough from the things that they believe we should be doing. And that is completely natural. I couldn't be a more empathetic with him. But at the same time, we are what we are and we, we stay where we stay and we have the capacity we have. Next step is a step that is much more serious, dangerous, that I'm not saying we we might not have to take in the future. But what I'm very serious is that we have to start explaining what that means to the citizens. We have to treat people as adults and tell them what's going on. So when it comes to the candidacy, and I go to the point, sorry, I, I, I went to a different topic. I go to the point, um, if you see where, where Ukraine was and Moldova, when it comes, when, whenever you go to try to join to a club, okay, you need to fulfill a few requirements. And the European Union is the same. And actually, when, because of the economic boom we had at the beginning of the century, we somehow were flexible on the requirements of some countries. On the medium term, it was proven that it was it's much better to be much rigid at the beginning of the process and flexible afterwards than the opposite. If you are very flexible at the beginning, then you have huge problems afterwards. So people have to understand what Ukraine and Moldova are in those list of requirements. And they're far away. But the good thing about the situation now is that we can help, continue helping them to try to get to those standards. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to explain. And that's why there are countries such as Turkey or North Macedonia 
that they have been in the candidate status for many years. I think Turkey is 21 years and North Macedonia, mm -hmm. last time I saw, I think it was 16 years, 17 years. Or Albania, that I think is 8 or 10. So we have to explain to the people that it's not overnight. It's good to, to somehow give us more, not only leverage, but more means to be able to help as much as we can. But we have also to understand that according to our standards, to be a member of the European Union, that's far, far away. But that doesn't mean that we have to be there and, and, and bring them as close as possible to us because what they're going through and because I really believe that they have to be part of the union sooner or later. But this is also a message to the people from Western Balkan. They got the fast track for the candidacy because of what's happening, like many other things that got into fast track in the late 90s and beginning of 2000 in the, with the Western Balkans. But now we have to be as 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 pragmatic and sincere, as mm. transparent with these countries and their citizens when it comes to how the process is going to develop. And that's that's the key for me. The, the key is how we are going to behave now, how we are going to explain. Are we going to say the truth? Are we going to say what are the rules? And, and then we'll, we'll work from that. But that doesn't mean that I still think that, that the measure was absolutely necessary. And, uh, and, and I was very glad that it had a full support and, 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 mm -hmm. and that we are on board on because we, we want to make this happen. But we have to explain that if, if you cannot do this overnight. It's just, you cannot do it. It's just a simple Absolutely. Adding to the symbolic part of it, and you're just mentioning that people will understand that. People understand, okay, this was the right thing to do. They're one country under attack. The other one could be at any time. Both countries expressed interest in being part of the European project. But would you agree with an analysis, which is maybe there should have been some other stage before being, you know, candidate members immediately? Also, because it connects to what we're going to talk in a minute, and that is frustration and resentment from other countries that have been waiting for a long time. Or do you think that this was the right thing to do and we'll just have to explain it to, to, to Europeans as such? It goes a little bit with, with my philosophy on how uh, politics should should work. And I think that, first of all, in politics, you shouldn't have red lines, not many. I mean, when it comes to your values, of course, and, 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 and your core inner ideals, that's, that's the red line. But then when it comes to particular actions, I think that you have always be uh, tried to be as present as possible, meaning if you have... A, that situation that you have to tackle and you have to find options and you have to find solution or propose something you just gotta do what you gotta do and you have a high percentage that you're gonna be mistaken but you have to take decisions and you have to go out there and say we're gonna do this and that and go for it 100 and then if you of course many of those times you're gonna be mistaken but that's part of it it's like let me put the example with the pandemic it was impossible that a government throughout the pandemic was going to be right in the measure. It was just impossible. Probably they will mm -hmm. have a lot of good uh, solutions, but most of them were going to be bad solutions. Even many of the solutions that we proposed on the parliament, many did not work. But we are just trying to, it was a fail and error. It's a complete different context, different situation that we haven't experienced in many years, that we are, most of us haven't been there with something similar happen. So we need to be creative and try to be, of course, reasonable and pragmatic and explain what it is. So in that sense, I'm sure that those, I know which countries are you mentioning that they're complaining and so on. Uh, the thing is how you explain it to citizens. And the thing is, the key thing for me is explaining to everyone that the process is not going to be easier for one or for the other. 
The only thing is that it's true that there are some that maybe they need more help nowadays. And that is obvious. You have to put most of your resources now where most are, are needed. And, and that's out of the question for me. And this mm -hmm. is it. So for me, that was the, the clear uh, goal of what has been done. I think it was a good decision that in the history books, it, was, it will be written as a positive decision. The key thing is how we're going to process that now and how we're going to do the balance with those that they feel resentment. But those who they feel resentment, they have to also to look at the context where we are now. And they have to be empathetic. And I know they are. Huh? Uh, but I, mean, I think that their complaints are natural. But at the end, I mean, we are where we are and, and what's happening in Ukraine and in the Moldavian borders, mm -hmm. they, they need special measures. That's how I see it. And Adrian, let me tell you that it's very refreshing to hear someone say that politics is also having to take risks <laughs> and make decisions and then try to uh, make things work uh, because sometimes politics is too much of hesitation and not trying to you know take sides in anything so very happy that you are one of those uh, people that take charge and, and, and try to find solutions. I just had your colleague Payet from uh, Estonia on the podcast, and actually we're doing a mini-series here in the same uh, conversation. And we also went to the question of the resentment. And that is very interesting because when we look at certain countries that may express resentment that Ukraine and Moldova already have the same status that they are. The truth is that also they're not doing as much as they could do to be part of a European family with the values that we have. So get a little bit into that, please. And you have that close relationship with the Western Balkans, spending time in Bosnia. Some countries are doing their best and they're really trying to make things speed up to be part full member of the European Union with everything that means others not so much so how do you see that dynamic locally well that's that's, that's the story of the, of the region. <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot there but I mean I'm not gonna lie I have a particular um, let me say love or closeness to to to, to Bosnia because I live there, I have friends from there, but also to, to Serbia, because I studied in the state in St. Louis, and St. Louis was one of the cities where after Dayton agreements, they, they located most mm -hmm. of the refugees uh, between Illinois, was Chicago area, St. Louis, and a little bit in Indiana. That found the three communities. So I have many, many friends from the regions, and I still talk with them very often, and we have discussed about this lately. And it's interesting to see how how they see things, right? And and we probably have we have all seen um, Serbia's prime minister declarations on this the last weeks of uh, Republika's Preska leader, uh, or even Albania. And their messages, of course, they have an external uh, impact, mm -hmm. but they are in message for internal politics. How I read them is that, of course, they are a message to Europe, but based on what he wants to transmit at home. Because for them, Europe is still a, a driver of both. And meanwhile, it's a driver, they're gonna use it for the political national interest. So I think it's part of the game. Which I don't think that back in the room, most of them, there are some of them, at least one of those that I have mentioned, that I, I don't think I need to specify who, that, that it's true that internally they may have 
different uh, goals or objectives on the long term when it comes to the European Union, but I think most of them, they understand the benefits of the union. And at the same time, and this will go back to the, to the list of requirements, sometimes the European Union citizens and even politicians, we have like this burden. Uh, it was uh, in anthropology back in the 19th century, it was white men's burden. Now we have the European men or women's burden. And, and we cannot expect certain countries and societies to, to get to our levels of acceptance of, of some issues like liberties, like that, that we give for granted, but we cannot expect those societies to, to get there overnight. So I think that in that sense, we have to be, to, we have to be more, we have to understand that. And, and probably you in Portugal have lived this with your grandparents or even parents. I have lived that with my grandparents that they are from a small rural area. So many of the things that we have been doing or accepting in the last 20 years, they still don't understand. It's true that they have learned that it's good for society, so they don't criticize that much, but, but in, uh, in a close environment, I mean, you know what I mean. So, so I think that context is everything. Uh, we have to read those declarations uh, in, in their internal political situation. I think there are political messages, they're politicians, so they are trying to deliver a message for the voters. And at the same time, I'm sure that that most of them, they are on the pragmatic way thinking of what's going on in Ukraine and Moldavia. And as far as we are transparent saying that this doesn't mean they're going to become members overnight and they're going to have to go through the same process as everyone else, it will be fine. But it's true that now we are at the peak of that moment. And it's understandable that, that sometimes the statements are a little bit too harsh. Indeed. We're running out of time. Time flies when we're having fun. But now I'm going to ask you in this last couple of minutes, tell people how they can know more about this and particularly how can they follow your work online? My work online, as, as every politician today, I have, I have Twitter, I have Instagram, and uh, of course uh, in the European Parliament website or even in our, well, my party, Ciudadanos Networks and, and the Renew Group Networks, I'm always there trying to show what we do. And, and of course, beyond that, that's all, all, only on the network, um, I do a lot of uh, constituency work. So I do a lot of traveling across Spain and I, I've been in the last two years, I've been in 37 out of the 50 provinces that we have. And I am planning uh, on the second half of this year to, to, to have been in every province in Spain. Um, so I'm quite active in that sense. Uh, but at the same time, I try to, to transmit as much as possible those things that I think are interesting because sometimes here in the battle we think, well, we have close uh, trialogue in CSRD, people is going to be excited. I have, you know, like 10 people watching the video. But then if I do a video of something more catchy, then I have a thousand views, you know. So, so in that sense, we, we also have to be <laughs> pragmatic and try to transmit those things that people find appealing but also uh, put everywhere those things that may not be appealing for everyone, but if the people want to see what you are doing with the vote, uh, so they are capable of, of, in a full transparency way, to see the work we do in the institutions. Very good. I've been talking with MEP Adrian Vasquez. To our listeners, uh, please follow this man's career. Uh, I uh, predict that he's going to do very important things. And... Adrian, this was a great privilege for us to have you on the podcast and to share your experience and your knowledge. Please come back at any time. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. And whenever you want to talk about Western Balkans, count me in. (laughs) 
I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the Social Liberal Movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.